0: Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, and today's show is pre-recorded, so you won't be able to call in. Of course, you can always reach go to the website, that's www.agcoauto.com. Just click on the contact bar, send me an email, and I'll be glad to get an answer back to you just straight away. Got a special treat for you today. I got Mr. Fred Duplichand in the studio, and we're going to talk about orphan cars. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. And, Fred, you are the president of the Lanyap Chapter of the AACA. And you tell folks exactly what that is. Antique Automobile Club of
1: America is the world's largest automobile club. Mm -hmm. It's attracting members who like automobiles of any kind. Primarily, the judging of cars involves cars more than 25 years old and in factory condition. But it isn't even necessary to own an automobile to be a member of AACA. Just that you appreciate automobiles and want to support their preservation.
0: Yeah, like a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, just love cars. They may or may not own one of their own.
1: Exactly. We're trying to attract young people because many of the members of organizations that restore or promote older cars are older people. But we know that there are many young people who are interested in automobiles, and the hobby is always changing. So we're looking at ways to promote the organization and to attract younger people into there. It's a great place to play and be. There are various kinds of activities on the national level, the state level, the local level, everything from Saturday night cruise-ins where Mm -hmm. uh, there's no cost involved. You just go to some local malt shop or or something like that. Bring your car and everybody walks around looking at other people's cars. Up to the competitive events where you go to state or national shows, show your car, and they're judged on a point basis. So Mm -hmm. it isn't a popularity contest, but rather a contest to determine which car is the most authentic. There are also fun events like tours where there is no competition, but groups of people get together and uh, someone hosts a tour to visit local sites, museums, natural geological formations, or Mm -hmm. other kinds of interesting local venues.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, you're also the regional manager of the Studebaker Association. That's right. Studebaker Drivers Club
1: is also one of the largest in the world. Studebaker is America's largest and most popular orphan car or independent make of automobiles. And there are about 13,000 members around the world. Studebaker was one of those companies that liked to promote and sell cars overseas. And so not only did they build them here in the United States, but manufactured parts, shipped them to other countries and had them, Assembled in other countries, and so there are Studebakers from remote places like Australia, South America, Belgium, the Netherlands—all those kinds of places. So they're quite popular around the world. In addition to being America's favorite, even though they're car. no longer here
0: with us in in the form of a car company, anyway. That's right. <laughs> now the Avante was one of the most popular Studebakers. A lot of folks have heard of, that, and you're also affiliated with the Avante clubs.
1: Yes, in Houston we have the base for the Third Coast Avante which is the group for people who live in areas along the Gulf Coast, which we call the Third Coast. Mm -hmm. And the Avanti is a very popular automobile. In fact, it's the only car that ever was continued to be manufactured 25 years after the demise of the company. (laughs) The company folded,
0: and the car was so popular that it continued to be produced. And it was just far enough ahead of its time to where it was able to just withstand that without re-engineering it was a well-engineered car and of
1: course the advanced styling by Raymond Lowy and we Mm -hmm. ought to probably take a few minutes talking about Raymond Lowy at some point but it was a beautiful car Well-engineered, had some advanced features like the first production car in America to have standard disc brakes. And it was a supercharged automobile, and so it was very fast. Set speed records at Bonneville. Andy Granatelli, you may remember Andy Granatelli and the Studebaker STP. STP, which was also a
0: Studebaker company.
1: That's right. There were many Studebaker companies. Studebaker was the only company that I'm aware of that ever went out still making a profit on their automobiles, <laughs> but that profit level was declining. They knew that their handwriting was on the wall, mm-hmm. so they decided to close down the automobile manufacturer but continued to make other products like mm-hmm. Onan Generators, right. Otis Elevators, Clark Floor Cleaners and machines like that as well as the STP brand and they got into aerospace engineering and all those kinds
0: of things so it was quite a company. That's right. Now Fred before we get started too much to talking about it, we mentioned that we're going to talk about orphan car. Now that's a term that a lot of people may not have ever heard the word orphan car. Exactly what is an orphan car?
1: It's an interesting term just as with humans or pets or animals mm-hmm. if the parents die or are lost then that person, that individual, like the car, becomes an orphan. It's sometimes confused with Barn finds or other cars that have been abandoned, but you know, you might find a Chevrolet abandoned, but that's That's not an orphan because they're still around. (laughs) That's right, Chevrolets are still around, the parent company is still around. But the purest definition, and there are various definitions, the purest definition is when the entire company dies, such as Studebaker, Packard, DeLorean, companies like that, Mm -hmm. when the entire line dies out. Now, there are some looser definitions. Sometimes cars are so unique that when that line of cars die, then people might want to call them orphans. Then a a good example would be the Corvair. Mm -hmm. That car was so very different from most cars that were being invented at the time. It was air-cooled, rear-engine. And so that was a very unique line of cars. And when that died, you know, some people would consider those orphan cars. Mm -hmm. But other examples might include the... Oldsmobile, Tornado, because they were front-wheel drive right. cars. and Cadillac Alante. Yes, exactly. Sporty kinds of cars mm-hmm. like the Buick Riotti and the Cadillac Alante. Mm-hmm. So the definitions vary. But then you have other kinds of orphans. An even looser definition might include divisions of big corporations that right. buy. For example, we know recently that Pontiac mm-hmm. ceased production of their automobiles. And so now Pontiacs can be considered right. orphans. Saturn. Uh, Saturn, exactly, and Oldsmobile before them. Mm-hmm.
0: Oldsmobile actually folded up not too, too long ago, and that was sort of a shame.
1: I certainly regretted that. I was wondering what it was that made GM pick the Oldsmobile as the one to stop production for, because at that time, Oldsmobile was America's oldest car make.
0: Yeah, when Ransom so, and Olds invented that car, it was just yeah. a really great car. It wouldn't have been the one you would have thought that they would have picked it. To-
1: Who would want to eliminate your historical car and would relinquish the title of America's oldest automobile make? That curved dash Oldsmobile Mm -hmm. of the the turn of the century was one of the things I know our national director just loves those early Oldsmobiles and owns a curved dash Oldsmobile. It was really just basically kind of a wooden sled. That's why the dash curved up sort of like a sled Mm -hmm. with a little engine underneath the frame of the car. What a unique automobile, and much to my regret, Oldsmobile folded in this decade. That's right. Divisions of Ford. The Thunderbird is a good example. So it depends on where you want to set that definition, and most orphan club lovers don't gobble a whole <laughs> lot about the definition of what an orphan is, mm-hmm. but are just attracted to cars that are dying out, no longer there, or are unique in some kind of way, and that's what I was always attracted to.
0: Well, Fred, what are some of the cars that we would consider orphan cars?
1: I have a list, Lewis, of cars that are no longer manufactured. And this list is well over 100 automobiles. Mm-hmm. But some of the things that your listeners might remember. I know I was always attracted to uh, reading books like The Great Gatsby, to the great cars of the 20s and 30s, those powerful, beautiful, well-engineered cars like the Pierce Arrow and oh, the yeah. Auburn Cord, Duesenberg cars. But here are some others that they might recognize. The Corvair. Of course, is a more recent orphan from mm-hmm. the '60s. The Crosley, little tiny cars, that well remembered, great mileage economical, just dirt cheap to operate. They made cars and trucks, and of course the DeLorean from the '80s. Yeah, everyone who saw
0: Back to the Future is going to remember the DeLorean.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> stamped forever in our minds. That movie did more to stamp that car into the burn it into the memories of people growing up in that era and I still see it today. Mm-hmm. How about DeSoto's? Yep. Remember DeSoto's growing up? I do. A long time ago the Durier and we probably ought to spend a couple of minutes talking about that one later.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of you listeners remember the Etzel.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Older cars and Essex Hudson. Great cars mm-hmm. in the 50s. In fact the movie Cars the hero in that car was old Doc who was a Hudson. And that was a very fast car that had a six-cylinder with uh, dual carburetors, dual exhaust, and would beat many of the V8 cars of that era because they were so low and so well-balanced. The Kaisers, an older car from the early era of America, Mm -hmm. is the Locomobile. Mm -hmm. Big, beautiful cars that I really admire. I'm always impressed with the size when I see a Locomobile. The Nash cars, many of us grew up with that. Recently, the Oldsmobile, Plymouth's, and of course, one of my favorites, the Studebaker's, Tucker. That is a great movie. If anyone has not seen the movie, Tucker, the man and his car should see that. A great movie, not Mm -hmm. inspirational, and it showed American determination Mm -hmm. in the face of great adversity. Uh, I really admire the Tucker story. The Willis was also another one there are some trucks that we never think of as having been made pickup trucks for example by Crosley the little one that I mentioned Mm -hmm. and Hudson I got the chance to see a Hudson truck
0: really I don't think I've ever seen a Hudson truck
1: up in Shreveport about two years ago Studebaker of course made Mm -hmm. trucks and Willis was pretty famous for trucks so America produced many orphan cars of all makes and models, and they're very popular. I was really entertained not too long ago in in the July issue of Heming's Classic Car. Pat Foster, one of my favorite writers, wrote an article about funny names for cars. The the title of his story was Driving a Coffin. And he starts off by talking about some of the really powerful names for automobiles, some of the great names that he said. I wish I had thought of that. Mm -hmm. Things like the Silver Arrow. The Royale, the Black Hawk, the Patrician, but he said, why would any automaker call his product a baby moose (laughs) or a buffalo? What about a darling? And those were real car names. Incredible. There's the bird, the coyote, the badger and the beaver, animal names. But before becoming one of the founders of Hudson Motor Company, Howard Coffin built a car and named it after himself. It didn't take too long before he discovered that nobody wanted to drive a car.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he renamed that car. In 1912, somebody made a car named the Dodo. Wow. And the Albatross. Can you imagine someone driving around with an Albatross Alcohol. hanging around their neck? <laughs> a little tiny car was called the Electric Cootie. Cootie. Yeah. It yeah. was not too popular, especially with the
0: girls. And, you know, just about anyone who was mechanically pretty savvy and had a workshop and was pretty good with his hands could almost start a car company. Absolutely. The internal
1: combustion engine was just evolving at that time, but it was certainly not the standard. Mm -hmm. And at the turn of the century, there was no standard power plant. There were electric cars,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: internal combustion cars, steam cars, even air cars, cars with sails on them. All kinds of things were being tried. And eventually, the gasoline-powered car became dominant. But ladies love the electric cars for the same reason that a lot of people today like them. They're quiet, Mm -hmm. don't produce any noxious odors, and are ready to go at the moment's notice. The only downside was, you know, you had to have that thing charged up. Only a very short distance. Kind of like the same problem
0: we got with them today.
2: And
1: the range, of course, sure. Mm -hmm. And we're making great strides in that area, too, but... Eventually, gasoline-powered automobile, and partly because of the inexpensive fuel that, Mm -hmm. who was it? I just started watching that show of Great American Entrepreneurs on TV not too long ago.
2: Rockefeller? Rockefeller? Yeah, Mm
1: -hmm. Rockefeller helped make fuel very inexpensive, starting out with kerosene. But then a byproduct of producing kerosene was this gasoline that they would often dump on the ground or, pour it out in some pit and burn it off yeah that can you
0: imagine they discovered that hey this was a very valuable product yeah. and so i remember reading after they had hit all. i think it was at spindle top and oil dropped from i don't remember it was two or three dollars a barrel to like 13 cents a barrel yeah because it has so much of it if you can imagine that hey we gotta take a quick little break but we'll be right back with more on the automotive hour
2: travel my way take the highway that's the best I'll get kicks. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a little advice for those who overshare on Facebook. I know, I friended you, but please, I don't need to know what you had for breakfast or where you just scratched. I don't need to know your Uncle Dominic's political beliefs or that your mom painted her kitchen the color called Frosted Fern. And for the last time, we don't care that your cat, Doogie Meowser, really looks like Neil Patrick Harris. Some more advice? In this tight economy, why waste money on a new vehicle? Stick with your older model and take good care of it to make sure it lasts. Come to Adco for quality maintenance and repair, and we'll save you from throwing money away on a big note so you can pay other bills or save for something else. In Facebook terms, that's something you'll definitely like. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go.
0: back. If you just join us, as the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldizan, and today's show is pre-recorded. We've got a special guest, Mr. Fred Duplichan, and we're talking about orphan cars. And orphan cars, of course, are cars that the parent company is no longer here with us. Fred, just before the break, we're talking about some of the funny names of cars that are out there.
1: Pat Foster mentions in his article some other ones that I thought were very funny. One manufacturer called their car the Bliss. Now, that sounds like a wonderful car, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And another one was called the Deal. And that sounds like a bargain. I think most people would have been pretty happy to get a deal. That's right. But what do you think about a car named The Hazard, <laughs> Blood, or Anger? Now, which one would you rather have? Yeah. Anger or Bliss? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: not put a whole lot of thought into that, did you? <laughs> Sometimes
1: I think people ran out of names for cars. One of them was called The Only, and Pat Foster said he doesn't know whether... It was because it had only one cylinder or only 12 horsepower or only because it only sold for $700. Who knows? But they called it the only. Wow. Some personalities, the Caesar, Ben-Hur, the Dan Patch, and some silly ones. The company that made Checker Motors first manufactured a car called Seven Little Buffaloes. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the cars seemed to foretell of danger. Uh, Burns Steam Trap. Sounded pretty ominous. And the cataract. Wow. (laughs) And the (laughs) cannonball. I don't think I'd want a cataract. No, I don't. The names that he found the funniest, though, the ones that Builder didn't seem to know what to call the car. So there was a car called the Everybody's, And another car called the Average Man's Runabout. And lastly, but not least, the Car Without a Name.
0: The Car Without a Name.
1: There was really a car called... A car without an. I heard of a man
0: without a country.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was a great article. I yeah. really enjoyed Pat Foster's article. Yeah, There are some Louisiana connections that we might talk a little bit mm-hmm. about. Recently, I watched a video documentary on WYES in New Orleans about the town of Covington. One of my good friends, Larry Frederick's family is from there. They've been in the automobile business a long time and owned the Ford dealership in Covington. So I was eager to watch the program. And I happened to pick up that the First automobile dealership in Covington was Dean Smith that started in 1911 and he sold three cars the Brush the Flanders and the Jackson mm-hmm. none of which we know today so these are all orphan cars and right. I, and I have seen some of these cars I did not see a Jackson but I have seen a Brush and the Flanders was part of another company the EMF company which I think stood for Everett Medgers and Flanders that was In the early days, associated with Studebaker, when Studebaker first started producing automobiles. Mm -hmm. The other Louisiana connection was the Boer Davis. I was sent an email with a short video from a television station in Shreveport about the Boer Davis. Originally, this car that was built by Robert Davis and Charles Bohr was produced up in Indiana. But... In 1918, they moved the company down to Shreveport, and okay. for the last three or four years of its production, the Boer-Davis automobile was manufactured in Shreveport, Louisiana. Wow. The only surviving Boer-Davis in the world, uh, what the article said, was in the Shreveport State Fairgrounds Museum. So if you're in that area, try to look mm-hmm.
0: it up. Of course, one of the first cars that we've talked about on the show before, and it was the Duryea. And the Duryea not only was the first production car, but a very workable design that for a number of reasons just didn't work out. Actually, was the first automobile involved in an accident that's been recorded in the United States. I didn't know that. Yeah, in New York City, a Duryea that was in a, a race, the cosmopolitan race, actually hit a lady on a bicycle. And I think the driver was taken to jail, and somebody went on in his car without him. <laughs> <laughs> Things were a little bit looser in those days, but... Yeah, we've got an article on the website on that, the first automobile accident in the United States.
1: There's always some adjustments to make when a new technology comes on the scene. I guess we're struggling now with cell phones and texting while driving, (laughs) all those kinds of things. So I guess there's always some dangers. But I'm glad you mentioned the Duryea because it is the logo car for Mm -hmm. the Antique Automobile Club of America because it was America's first production automobile. In 1896, the Durier brothers, Charles and Frank, put that company together and sold. Their idea was to produce an identical car, just uh-huh. uh, chain production. production. So they built 13 cars that year, and they were all identical. So that's why we recognize them as the first production line automobiles in America they sold it for a profit and so that was the beginning of the american automobile industry but they did real well that first durier like you said is in the smithsonian and another one with frank driving it won the first motor car race in america
0: that was actually the chicago race thanksgiving of 1895 and that did more or less set durier up because winning that race was a big big deal the second race was actually in new york city in may of 1896 It was sponsored by Cosmopolitan Magazine, and what they did, they raced right up from City Hall all the way up the streets of New York to the Cosmopolitan building about 30 miles north of the city. The streets were pretty crowded, and at 74th and Broadway, one of the Duriers actually lost control, hit Miss Evelyn Thomas on her Columbia bicycle, knocking her down and actually breaking her leg. She survived the incident, but the police were sort of befuddled, didn't know exactly what to do, so they arrested the driver, and his car ended up going on without him.
1: It's interesting that racing was a very popular topic and something that was very much linked to the success of automobiles. Mm-hmm. Henry Ford got his start because he was in an automobile race and beat the leading car of the day. I forget what model that was, but that was very important. The well, Duryea was also raced in Europe in that's right. London to Brighton Emancipation Run. I don't mm-hmm. remember much about that race, but he was first, Frank Duryea was first across the finish line. Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, of course, Louis Chevrolet was a noted race car driver?
1: Oh, absolutely. That was the reason for the name. They wanted a name that was appealing and well-known to the public, and Louis Chevrolet was the man of the day at the racetrack, and so everybody knew of his racing exploits.
0: Of course, a very, very popular car, and that's Studebaker. And we talked just a hair about it at the onset, but a lot of folks don't realize exactly how long the Studebaker Company was in business.
1: It was a long time. In fact, Studebaker Company started by the five Studebaker brothers, the three main ones being Clement and Henry and John. Mm-hmm. started a wagon company. Their fathers and forefathers were knife makers, blacksmiths, and wagon makers, and so it was a natural for them. One of the brothers decided to go off to California when he heard about the California gold yeah, rush and wanted to go make his... forty-nine era. Exactly.
0: That's where 49ers come from. <laughs> Those yeah. For don't know.
1: That's true. And in California, he discovered that hitting gold was a pretty hit-and-miss operation, and that was kind of one of those 5% deals. You know, only Mm -hmm. 5% of the guys. The other 95% went bust, but they all needed products. All of them needed the general store, and all of them needed the hotel to stay in, and so the entrepreneurs in that bunch helped to really make the money during that era, Mm -hmm. and John Moeller Studebaker decided that he was going to go ahead in his family business and manufacture things out of wood and metal, and Mm -hmm. so he made wheelbarrows and wagons. Which is something they all needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, in quick order, he made a lot of money. In fact, they called him Wheelbarrow Johnny in California. Mm-hmm. But he came home with a pocket full of gold nuggets, about eight thousand dollars, wow. and added that into his brother's wagon company. Yes,
0: in 1850s. That was a in chunk
1: 18, of change. Absolutely. <laughs> and so that made a giant boost in the company's fortunes. And then the Civil War came along, and the Union used them to make wagons. Mm-hmm.
0: So, of course, that really launched them to where they were from there on out. They we're going to take one more quick little break. We'll be right back with more the automotive.
2: Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things that chap my hide lately. $150 jeans. Vanity licenses that are too complex to read. Billboards that say drive carefully. Think about that one. Child beauty pageants. I mean, let's go ahead and set these kids up for failure before they get to kindergarten. And how about when you try to be nice and let someone out in traffic and they won't go because they're talking on the cell phone. Here's a message for you. Put the phone down! Another thing that chaps my hide is repair shops that use Swaptronics to fix your car. That's where they can't pinpoint the exact problem, so they just change parts, hoping to fix something. Which means your repair bill could double. The experts at Agco determine the exact problem, then fix it right the first time, at the price quoted which does not chap my hide. One more info. Visit agcoauto.com. That's a g c o a u t o.com. Agco. It's the place to go
1: noise of the river to ride Don't mind it cause the man with the whiskers Has a lot
2: behind it But I can't keep punching with the
0: Victory crew when you're making me Punch you with that bottle move. I wanna get Welcome back, if you just join us, is the Automotive buyer I'm your host, Louis Halzan, And today's show is pre-recorded so you won't be able to call in But if you do need to get in touch with me Just go to the website and tap in Contact, you hit that contact button And send me an email, I'll get an answer right back to you Today's show, we have a special guest Mr. Fred Duplachan and we 're talking about orphan cars, That's cars that 's cars the parent company 's no longer around and Fred, just before the break, we were talking about the Studebaker Company, which I think even a lot of contemporary people know the name Studebaker, if not the cars
1: sure, it was a very popular make. In fact, it was the leader of the independents. Once you get past the big three of Ford and GM and Chrysler products, mm-hmm. they were next in line for most of that era. They were extremely popular because of the longevity. Now, this is a family-owned, family-operated company for many, many years. They were very successful. In fact, that after the Civil War, when they got that big boost from making government vehicles, right. then they were on the road to success. And by 1900, they were the world's largest vehicle maker. Mm-hmm. And so they were sitting in a very good place for the beginning of the automobile industry, which started right around the turn of the century. They started experimenting with automobiles Mm -hmm. right around that time. In fact, their first production automobile was an electric car Mm -hmm. made in cooperation with Thomas Edison. Yeah, in fact,
0: electric cars looked like for a while they would take off because we had a lot more electrical technology than we had internal combustion engine technology. Absolutely. At the time, we had motors, we had electrical infrastructure in the country, and so on and so forth. It's just the limited range was really a problem for them. And, of course, once the price of gasoline started to drop, then it was more or less a foregone conclusion, because gasoline cars are just so much more economical to operate.
1: Yes, absolutely. Their first production gasoline car didn't come for a few years. as Studebaker was very much oriented toward quality. And the Studebaker brothers kept pace with the strides in the automotive industry, and they weren't going to produce one under the Studebaker name until they felt that it was of high enough quality and durability and integrity to sell it as a Studebaker. So I think it was about 1907 that they started producing gasoline-powered automobiles in conjunction with that Everett, Meggers and Flanders company. But it was a Studebaker automobile. They got some help from those companies. And they made some very great automobiles over the years. Famous ones like the 31 President, which was a a large luxury car and is still today considered a full classic by the Classic Car Club of America. Mm -hmm. The 39 Champion, which was highly praised as advanced in design and durability for the average person. And after the war, well, uh, we should talk a little bit about during the war. Because during Mm -hmm. the war, Studebaker, like all of the big manufacturers, was heavily involved in the war effort. That's right. Studebaker produced the engines, the radial engines for the B-17 bombers. Mm -hmm. They also made the big giant deuce-and-a-half transport trucks Mm -hmm. and the Weasel, which was a a Jeep-like vehicle, but it had tracks on the rear rather than wheels all around. Studebaker, after the war, continued to be successful, especially because... Right after the war, they were able to come out with new models rather than, like the big three, come out with just warmed over, rehashed uh, rehashed 41, 42 models. Studebaker came out with new cars. Right
0: along the 1960s, they came out with a Studebaker Lark. Which was actually sort of a revolutionary car for its time.
1: Absolutely. Sort
0: of a small car. In fact, my dad owned a Lark.
1: Yep, one of the first compact cars. And, of course, there are arguments about who made the first compact, Crosley and all those other cars. But of the big car manufacturers, Studebaker really took a jump in 59 when they produced the Lark. And it wasn't long, though, before the big three was on their case and producing economical compact cars of their own. And so Studebick was back in kind of behind the eight ball trying Mm -hmm. to produce a car that was popular enough, sold in enough volume, but able to produce it at a good price. Studebaker always struggled because they were South Bend, Indiana. Mm -hmm. They were Notre Dame University. They were the churches, the hospitals. They were very community-minded people, and like I said, it was a family company, and so they kept being involved with the community and were just loved by all of the people around. The union also loved them. Uh, They had this warm, fuzzy relationship with the union that eventually had them paying the highest wages in the industry. And so being an independent manufacturer, not having the volume that the Mm -hmm. big three had, in the mid-50s when the price wars started between Ford and Chevrolet, they really lost ground. And it wasn't until 59 when they produced that lark Mm -hmm. that they were able to catch up some ground. But again, the big three were right far behind them. And so in the early 60s, Studebaker was hurting again. At this point, a new young man came onto the scene for Studebaker by the name of Sherwood Egbert. Sherwood Egbert was a, a former Marine, big strapping guy over six feet tall and just a very dominant character, charismatic, well-liked, determined, focused kind of individual. Uh-huh. He'd come from the uh, McCullough Corporation where he was vice president. McCullough, you know, produces supercharges, so there's a little link to that later in this story. But Sherwood Egbert came on the scene and He first helped get the redesign of the now aging Studebaker Hawk, which was a beautiful car in the beginning, but started looking pretty aged in the 60s. So he hired Brooks Stevens, a well-known designer who had been part of the automotive industry for a long time. Brooks was able to take that 1953 basically model 10 years later, and he squared off the roof. And he put a Mercedes-like grill in the front of it and did some other refinements to that car and just made a fabulous-looking car that looked beyond its time period with just remodeling that car. There was a close relationship. Studebick was also the Mercedes-Benz distributor for the United States at the time. And so they enjoyed this chummy relationship with Mercedes and used some of their styling cues. The Hawk was such a, the GT Hawk, as it was now called, because the Hawk really started in 56. But once Brooke Stevens redesigned it, they started calling it the Gran Turismo Hawk. Mm-hmm. And that was so popular that Egbert said, you know, we should go one step further with this. And so he himself penciled out a new sporty, four-seater car. They liked the Hawk because families could use this car. If you had a small family, you know, the mom and dad sits in the front and the two kids in the back seat, which was somewhat smaller, but still it was a family car. Whereas the other popular sporty cars like the Thunderbird and the Corvette, were two-seaters. And so he said, I want this to be a four-seater car. And so he sketched out something that he thought would be popular to sell it. And he engaged Raymond Loewy. Raymond Lowy, the famous Frenchman who is now known as the father of industrial design, Mm -hmm. helped to design the Avanti. I should take a couple of minutes and divert and talk about Raymond Lowy because he was an incredible person. Before World War One he invented an airplane and sold and marketed his own airplane and then during the war he was a hero. He won the uh, Cross de Guerre, which was the war cross in mm-hmm. France and uh, was a hero. Uh, but soon after World War One came to the United States, I think in nineteen seventeen or eighteen, still wearing his army uniform because he he was very broke at the time and had about forty dollars in his pocket it was told and came to the United States and started designing clothing uh, went to the fashion market and was a big hit there but as soon his interest turned to industrial design and over the years he designed so many different things refrigerators and sewing machines and all kinds of home domestic products and then he invented logos the shell logo he's the guy that invented the coca-cola bottle shape the- this is
0: probably the most recognizable shape on the face of the
1: planet Absolutely. <laughs> That feminine form, to leave it to a Frenchman to oh, in, 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 <laughs> uh, to invent something like that. And his cars reflected the same kind of styling. Mm-hmm. So he was involved with Studebaker from the early days in the 30s and helped them invent some very famous early line cars. And then probably one of his absolute best designs that was so far ahead of time was the 1953 Starliner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The Starliner was very low and long and sleek. In fact, Studebaker marketed it as the car with the European flair. It was fully eight inches lower than Fords and Chevrolet at the time, and it was long, low, and sleek. In fact, that same car is still raced at the Bonneville Salt Flats because of its extremely slick design and uh, low resistance to the wind. Aerodynamics. Yeah. Studebaker is well known at Bonneville Salt Flats. Studebaker still holds more speed records than any other make of automobile at the Bonneville. Saul flats, even to today, that's a pretty incredible record. And one of the entries into that was the 53 Studebaker. Later, when Sherwood Egbert wanted to produce his own car, he called on Raymond Lowy again mm-hmm. and asked him to design a car in very short order. Lowy engaged three other guys, took them out to the desert in Palm Springs and isolated them for three weeks where they invented this whole other car, designed and engineered this car in three weeks out in the middle of the desert. No phones, no television, just working day and night to produce this car. And the only way that Studebaker was going to get this car to market in time was to make it out of fiberglass rather than stamped steel. And so that's what they ended up doing. Even so, there were delays. The prototypes of that car were carried around the country in a big giant cargo plane. And everywhere it went, there was great newspaper coverage. Studebaker did a wonderful job of promoting it and I think Raymond Lowry probably had a lot to do with that. He was a fabulous promoter. But he recognized what the public wanted, and that's how he was able to be so popular and so well used in the design industry over all those years. His theme was to make something... A little bit ahead of its time, but not so far ahead of time that the public wouldn't buy it.
0: Right, it wouldn't recognize it. Or wouldn't,
1: yeah, it. would say that it's just too weird for them. They, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't attracted That's to a fine it. Fine
0: balance, even today.
1: Absolutely, it's a credit to him that he's now known as the father of industrial design. His cars were always very sleek, and so they were able to get eventually get the... Studebaker had no experience with fiberglass cars, and so they engaged the same company, and I don't remember the name, but it was the same company. It was manufacturing bodies for the Carvette, mm-hmm. and so that company knew what it was doing, but still it took time to get the cars working right and the doors and body panels fitting mm-hmm. right to be able to get it into production.
0: And that car actually ended up being the Studebaker Avante.
1: That's correct. The problem with the car was that it took so long to get into production that by the time it did roll out the factory orders were being canceled for the car and the other fact was that Studebaker was dying at the time they produced that car only 62 and 63 but it was so popular that when Studebaker decided to close the company, some wealthy Studebaker dealers bought the rights to continue making it. And since it was fiberglass, you didn't have those huge stamped steel costs like other cars. So they continued to make the car. And that car was made originally 18 more years. And then it was sold to another Avanti Motor Corporation. And they made it for many more years. In I mean, fact, it's moved
0: production up to Canada at one point, didn't they?
1: Not for the Avantes. Uh, Studebaker made cars in Canada in sixty five and 65, okay. but only family cars. They ah. didn't produce trucks, they didn't produce GT Hawks, and they didn't mm-hmm. produce Avantis. Only okay. fam, four-door, two and four-door family style cars. But they continued to make in the Avanti. In fact, it's the only car ever to have been made 25 years after the demise of the parent company. Avanti's were still being made, and it continued on in, into the 2000s. It was restyled in 2000 by Tom Kellogg, one of the original mm-hmm. designers, and then was made until 2006.
0: Yeah, that's pretty strong, and I think they finally just ran out of the money to retool or do anything else. Just going to carry a design so far. We're talking to Mr. Fred Duplashan on today's show, and we're talking about orphan cars. Hey, if you like this kind of program, let me know, and I'll try to put more together in the future. We're going to take one more quick little break, and we'll be right back with more.
2: Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things I'm tired of. I'm tired of reality TV. There's nothing real about it. I'm tired of all those housewives, the Kardashians, the brides, the bachelors, celebrities in rehab. Here's an idea. Let's ship all the Flavor Flavs, Snookies, and Honey Boo Boo's off to a deserted island. And watch America's average IQ jump up a few points. I'm also really tired of automotive repair shops that promote an $89.95 brake job and then hit the folks for $500 and give them a lousy job. Listen to me and take your vehicle to AGCO where you get quality work performed right the first time for a reasonable price. And that my friends is a reality. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O ocom com. Agco. It's the place to go.
0: Welcome back. join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis. Outland. Final segment. And, of course, we have Mr. Fred Duplichan in the studio today. And we were talking about orphan cars. The other night I was watching American Pickers. And they actually found a DeLorean dealership sign. That they purchased. And I thought that was just so cool. And, of course, they did as well. But the DeLorean is one orphan car that I think just about everyone's familiar with due to the movies topic. And it was kind of a neat car.
1: Absolutely. It was uh, unique. And that's the way John DeLorean wanted it. John DeLorean was one of those charismatic, flashy guys who... Was the first of everything, just about. He was born of a relatively poor family. His dad worked for Ford Motor Company, Mm -hmm. but he was just a line worker. And his dad was a drinker, a brawler, and was often in trouble. But John DeLorean in the early days showed some promise. And so he was going to one of those early, what did they call them, uh, a technical high school, sort of a magnet school yes, in sir. those mm-hmm. days for low-income families. And that got him into Lawrence Technical Institute where he earned a master's degree from Chrysler Institute. But he didn't go to work for Chrysler. Instead, he went—he had a better offer from Studebaker Packard and then General Motors. hmm while well, at General Motors, he just skyrocketed. He took off. He was the youngest executive of every branch that he ever got into as he worked his way up through the management of General Motors. And he was their youngest general manager ever. But... John DeLorean was still an engineer at heart. He has a lot of patents. He was a brilliant guy who knew automotive engineering and decided that he wanted to build his own car. That was his dream. Mm-hmm. And so he left GM, something that most people would consider a dream job. Oh, yeah. Uh, making fabulous money and having all kinds of privileges, left that job to form his own company under his name, DeLorean. Mm-hmm. And then he started promoting the car, all kinds of investors, some of them like Johnny Carson and other famous people, invested in the DeLorean Motor Corporation, and he started looking for a place to put that car. One of the places that he looked at, incidentally, was Shreveport, Louisiana. Again, Shreveport coming up as a potential site to build DeLoreans. But he also looked overseas. Places like Brazil and Puerto Rico tried to appeal to him because his company was cash-strapped. It takes lots of money to Mm -hmm. market and promote an automobile, and he was always looking for money. But eventually, the British government, who was just desperate to try something to revitalize war-torn Northern Ireland, over the years finally seduced John DeLorean into building DeLoreans in Northern Ireland near mm-hmm. Belfast. And so in no time they had a new plant build. The workers there who had been shipbuilders for many generations were now eager to be working again. In fact, it was often said that John DeLorean's efforts in Northern Ireland to promote peace between the Protestants and the Catholics was a wonderful venture that really did a lot to help them because he said I'm going to have Protestants and Catholics working side-by-side in his company. And he fulfilled on that promise. And it brought work to the area. Now, the DeLorean was a car built from scratch. DeLorean was an engineer. He knew what he was doing, and he knew the automobile business. So there's no kit car parts Mm -hmm. to this. It's not a car that was assembled with parts off the shelf from other manufacturers. Almost everything was designed
0: specifically for the DeLorean. I think one of the most recognizable features of the DeLorean was the stainless steel outer body shell. Absolutely. One of the most recognizable features. Yes, it was very
1: unique in that respect. There were very few cars. In fact, Ford was one of the companies that experimented with stainless steel because of its durability. Mm -hmm. But it was very hard to fashion it into the kinds of curves that most Fords needed. I think they started off maybe with a 36 Ford with those big fat fenders on it. Mm -hmm. And also made a Lincoln Continental and I think a Thunderbird also out of stainless steel as an experiment. But it wore out the dies. It was such a hard metal that it often Mm -hmm. wore. Out the dies quickly, but. DeLorean brought it to good use. Now, it's interesting. Most people think of the DeLorean as a stainless steel car, but it's Mm -hmm. actually a fiberglass car. Mm -hmm. It starts off with a fiberglass monocoque shell, Mm -hmm. and so underneath everything is this fiberglass shell. Then they screw these stainless steel panels on top, and that was one of the things that appealed to John DeLorean because he wanted what he called an ethical car. Interesting name for John DeLorean to use because he was involved in so many controversies, but he wanted a car that was going to be durable that it was styled well, that would last a long time, and that the entire car would last a long time. I have an 81 DeLorean, and that car rides like a new car. I can get in it, go anywhere. We've traveled all over the country in it, Mm -hmm. and it rides and sounds like a relatively new car. The design of the car comes from, if I can pronounce his name right... Giorgio, forget his first name, but (laughs) Guigiaro was his family name and this was the same guy that designed Ferraris and Maseratis, De Tomassos and Lamborghinis so he knew what he was doing so this was a great body design. The problem was is that he designed it in the 70s and the car didn't get into production into the 80s. 81, 82 and 83 were the three years that DeLoreans were sold and so it was getting already a little bit dated And also there were the engine power plant. He chose an engine that was a fuel-injected V6 engine, which was a good choice. It fit well. It ran well. It was a great durable engine, but it was not very powerful. It was jointly designed by Peugeot and Renault and Volvo, and so they called it the p rv 6 And in America, we saw it mostly in Volvos. I'm sure that you have worked on some 70s eras Volvos, 70s and 80s Volvos, that had that very same engine in it. AMC American Motors also used it in the AMC Eagles. So it was a very durable engine and lasted well, but it was only 130 horsepower, which was not unusual. Most European cars of that era had about 100
0: horsepower, so 100... I think the problem was it just didn't live up to the styling of the car. Right, a lot of... It just looked like it should be a really fast car. <laughs> a lot of people wanted it to be a Corvette, which it was
1: not. That's right. Uh, but they wanted it to compete with the Corvette since it was a two-seater. But even Carvettes of those 80s, I have a friend that has an 81 Corvette. It's got 180 horsepower. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a, hard, a lot of horsepower for a Corvette. But that was uh, part of what was happening in the era. Another interesting fact is that the speedometer only goes up to 85 miles an hour. In the movie, Back to the Future, they mm-hmm. had to modify the speedometer to make it... To to create an artificial one to make it get up to 88 miles an hour, which was the the speed that you needed to flash into the future or go back into the past. (laughs) Even Carvettes had a speed armor. It was a federal regulation that all cars had a speed armor that only went up to 85 miles an hour, even Carvettes in 1981. Wow! But it was a wonderful car and only about a fewer than 10,000 of them were made when John DeLorean ran into money problems. The British government started withdrawing their support of the automobile and eventually went out of business in mm-hmm. controversy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's still relatively fresh, even in my memory,
1: because it just hadn't been that long ago. Absolutely, but today it's a, a, a well-known and respected car, and I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure what your listeners liked. I'm sure a lot of them remember the Packards. That's one of my wife's favorite is uh, the Packards,
0: especially from the Gatsby era. Yeah, I I such. Think, well, another thing, I think there's still a lot of Packards around in museums and stuff, because they were expensive cars, people didn't just junk them absolutely they were luxury
1: cars and one of the problems that happened during the world wars is that cars were melted down but people were reluctant to melt down the packards and the locomobiles Mm -hmm. and some of the other luxury cars pierce arrows and those kind of cars and so some of those were stored away in barns and garages and didn't weren't taken out till after Mm -hmm. the war so some of those survived but i know that a lot of your listeners probably remember the nashes and hudson's we grew up with those kinds of cars Mm -hmm. A lesser-known one was the Kaisers and the Kaiser Fraziers. Some of the famous sporty ones that I like, because I tend to specialize in sporty kinds of cars, was the Kaiser Darren, which was another little fiberglass car. You may remember that car. It was unique. It was sort of like, a, you know, when the guys went off to war, Mm -hmm. they saw those European two-seater sports cars in there, so everybody wanted one of those, and so American manufacturers started looking toward doing that, and Kaiser was one of those, invented the Darren, which the side door slid into the front. Mm-hmm. fender which was pretty unique
0: that is a highly unique feature i don't think there's any cars even today that do that i want to tell everybody how much i appreciate him listening to us this morning and every saturday morning big thank you to all our podcast listeners out there hey why not go on itunes and give us a rating it really helps us out and we certainly appreciate it thank you to mr fred duplichan for being with us today and sharing his information with us if you like this kind of program please let me know and i'll be glad to try to put more together in the future have a great weekend